All right. Well, as the kids are going out, if you have a Bible with you this morning and you would like to open up to Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, or if you have a phone or a tablet device or anything like that that you want to open up that has, has the Bible on there, we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 27. Might need to say a quick prayer for the child care workers this morning. So. That is a good problem. That's the kind of problem we, we want to have. That's fantastic. So uh, Matthew chapter 27. What we try to do around here on Sunday mornings as far as studying God's Word together and, and in this time of, of preaching is to work through passages of Scripture. And so for the last 11 weeks, we were w- looking through the book of 1 Peter. And with you, uh, on the back of your bulletin, on the back of your worship guide, there are some notes that you can follow along. And so if you would like to take that out, mainly this morning I just put down some scripture passages. Uh, But if you want to turn over the back of your worship guide, you've got some notes and some information there. And at the top it might say 1 Peter. And 1 Peter just represents the series, the group of uh, Bible studies we've been doing together on Sunday morning. And then as I mentioned earlier, next week... We'll begin looking specifically at what does it mean to be a church. There's a lot of confusion in 2014, a lot of confusion about what's a church supposed to do? Why does a church exist? What's a church not supposed to be doing? Those type of questions. And so we're going to begin to look at that and uh, take a, build upon the heritage of faith at First Baptist that's been here for a long time. But ask ourselves, what happens now? What happens 2014 going forward. And so that's kind of where we're going on, on Sunday morning. This morning specifically, though, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 27, and we'll get to that in just a minute, and they'll, in just a couple of minutes there'll be some verses up on the screen. But I want to remind us as we come to Easter, and, and we need this reminder every time we look at the Bible, but especially at Easter. It's tempting to look at Easter and think that's something that happened long ago and far away. And it's not a big step from long ago, far away, to that doesn't have anything to do with my life. I believe Easter. I believe there was this guy named Jesus that existed. I think that it's real. I don't really have a problem with that. But what I have a problem with is how in the world it impacts my life. What does it say to me right now? And so I want us to be so careful as we look at these passages this morning that we make the connection between here is Easter and here is God's work in our life and how those two fit together. So what's going on in Matthew? Well, Jesus has been teaching for a while, probably about three years, something like that. He's been teaching. He's been doing miracles. He's been preaching about the kingdom of God, about how, who God is, how God works in the world. And in the process of doing this, Jesus has made some of the religious people pretty mad. Jesus has a way of doing this. He talks about their religious traditions. He talks about their temple, their religious building. Jesus has a way of making religious people mad even today, especially when he confronts their traditions, especially when he confronts their religious buildings. And so if you're here and you think, I'm nervous to be in church, my life is broken, my life is not together, my life is full of trouble, don't be nervous. The people who should be nervous are the religious people who think they have it all together because Jesus speaks into our lives into our brokenness. And so this is what Jesus was doing. He was making the religious people pretty mad. And the religious people were, in fact, ready to get rid of Jesus. And so when Jesus begins to come into Jerusalem, 
on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. He's beginning to come in because there's something called Passover that's going to happen. Passover was one of the big celebrations on the, on the Jewish calendar. It was, you know, kind of they're cruising the coast, but with donkeys, not cars. And so uh, it was a big deal. A lot of people came in to town for Passover. And so as Jesus is coming in, as we celebrate with Palm Sunday, these religious leaders know that they need to get rid of Jesus, but they can't cause a riot in the process. And so what they ultimately decide is they need to get the Romans involved. They need to get these Roman officials. Rome was ruling this area where Jerusalem is located, and there was a governor there, a Roman official by the name of Pilate. And so the Jewish officials say, we need to get rid of Jesus. Pilate is the way that we're going to be able to do that. So now, let's look at Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to start reading in verse 27 as well. So with your phone or your Bible, you can even look up on the screen as well. Let's look here. Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, just kind of a, uh, a government building there, and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. What's going on in these verses? These are verses that we may have heard before. We may have seen them acted out. But what's going on in these verses? What's happening in these verses is what is called the game of the king. If you travel to Jerusalem now and other places in the ancient Roman Empire that are still visible, you, you can see these large pavement stones. The one that's found in Jerusalem today that you can even go and see today in Jerusalem, that one dates a little bit after the time of Jesus, so it probably wasn't the original one that Jesus would have been uh, encountering at this time, but there were these large pavement stones. And what these stones represented was a game board. So you had these Roman soldiers who would lay out these game boards, and then they would play games, and sometimes very harsh games. It was almost like this form of hazing. They would roll some dice and make a selection, and one of the army privates, so to speak, might be drawn out. And then they would play a game with him. They would treat him as a king. They would put a robe on him and maybe put a crown on him and give him a scepter. And they would treat him as a king. And then ultimately, sometimes they would even kill him. And so it was a game that they played. It was a game of the king. And now look what happened to Jesus. He comes in and they put a staff in his hand. They put a robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on him. They mock him as a king. Do you see what's happening here? These Roman soldiers are playing a game board with Jesus. Jesus is the blue Gumby character in Candyland. Jesus is the old silver shoe in Monopoly. Jesus is just another part of their game that they played all the time to pass the time. Here these guys are called to carry out this crucifixion, and Jesus is just a game piece. And can I ask us to come face to face with the reality that in 2014, many of us 
still play games with Jesus. We still play games with Jesus. He's a religious teacher. He might do something good in our life. We might encounter him twice a year. We, we might have something to do with him if we need something from him. But frankly, he's just a game. He's just a game piece like these Roman soldiers were encountering right here. And what they didn't realize, and what we often don't realize, is who Jesus really is. Because if they would have really known who Jesus was, I don't think they would have treated him as a game. Have you ever seen a situation where someone is playing a game or toying around with an animal and they really don't know what they're doing? Like, like the tourist that walks up to the bear or the alligator, those really great YouTube videos, and, and they're, they're messing with the animal. And then what happens? The animal just turns on them. You know, and, and, and it's like you didn't know what you were messing with. You were messing with this bear and this alligator, and, and you got beared and alligator. You know, you got what you deserve. Uh, when I was in college, we lived in uh, some apartment complexes that uh, kind of backed up to this wooded area there in Oklahoma. And so one night, my roommates and I saw an armadillo. These are the type of things you do in college because, you know, your prefrontal lobe's not fully developed. And and so it seems like a good idea. You're trying to pass the time. And and so we were like, we're going to catch this armadillo. And so we got a big trash bag. I'm not sure why, but a big trash bag. And and we decided we are going to surround this armadillo and get it to run into the trash bag. Absolutely no idea what's going to happen when the armadillo gets in the trash bag, but... You know, that's what you do. You don't think things out all the way. And so, uh, so we surround this armadillo, and we're going to start to chase it into this trash bag. Did you know that armadillos jump? <laughs> I didn't realize that at, at the time. And, and so here we are. We're going, like, you know, four, four college guys, manly, girly men, and, and we're going to, like, we, we get this armadillo headed toward the trash bag, and the armadillo jumps and squeals, and we squeal and, and run back to the apartment. I have no idea what happened to that armadillo. We didn't catch the armadillo. We had no idea what we were dealing with when we went to encounter that armadillo. These Roman soldiers had no idea who they were dealing with when they faced Jesus. People in America in 2014 oftentimes have no idea who they're dealing with when they use the name Jesus. And do you know what happened when these Roman soldiers were toying with Jesus? When they were playing games with Jesus? You know what he did? He turned on them and took them out. No, he didn't. Of course that's not how the story went. What did he do? He died for them. He absorbed their sin and their gain, and took on their pain, on himself, he died for them. And what I want us to see is that Jesus has done exactly that for us. There are a couple of verses here that help us make sense of the idea of what Jesus has done for us. I want us to see these verses. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a payment for many. Jesus didn't come so that he would be treated as a king. He came so that he would die as a king. Isaiah 53, 5. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. Jesus was treated like a game piece so that we could experience healing, so that we could have peace and salvation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Even when we live for ourselves, even when we want nothing to do with Jesus, those realities still exist. Even if you have not given your life fully to Jesus, even if you consider Jesus a good teacher or a good man, but he was a historical figure from long ago, those verses, those realities that he died so that we would have peace, so that we would have healing, so that we would have salvation, those realities still exist. We have a Savior who did not turn on those people, on those soldiers who were crucifying him, but he absorbed that. He died for them. He died for us. And that's a reality that helps us to understand why he stayed on the cross, why he endured this game. Philippians chapter 2 helps us with this idea. Why would Jesus go through this? Philippians 2, though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be held on to, as something to be clung to. Instead, he gave up those divine privileges. He emptied himself. He took the humble position. He was born as a human being, and when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us, not in spite of the fact that he was God, but precisely because he was God. We think, how could God, the one who created all things, the one who is in charge of all things, in control of all things, how would he allow his son to be treated as a game piece? How would he allow him to be crucified? But it was precisely because Jesus was God that he died for us, that he took on that punishment. So why didn't he fight back? Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. This is after the crucifixion has taken place. These soldiers were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. It was through his death that these soldiers finally realized who Jesus was. It was because of the way that they saw him die that their eyes were open. And this is something that we need to remember about what it means to be a Christian in 2014. We are not known as Christian in 2014 because of power or popularity or influence or prestige or any of those things that might make us important in the world's eyes. We're known as Christians in 2014 because we're constantly dying to ourselves, giving up our lives in order to serve others. If we're going to be known as anything as a church, let's not be known as popular. Let's not be known as influential. Let's not be known as powerful. Let's be known as that place that will give up their lives in order to serve others and point people to Jesus. That is who our Savior was. He didn't fight back because through his death, these Roman soldiers saw who he really was. And then the end of Philippians 2. 
Philippians 2, as you get to those final verses, 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God exalted him, or elevated him to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So death was not the end of the story. The reason that Jesus did not fight back, the reason that he endured this crucifixion is because his death would not be the final piece of the story. There was the resurrection to come. And for the early believers, for these early Christians, the confession, the thing that set them apart as followers of Jesus was that they would confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord was the identifying mark for a believer in the first century And in 2014, it should still be the identifying mark. Your identity as a Christian, and and we, we, we say this a lot, but we need the reminder, especially on Easter. Your identity as a Christian is not related to church attendance. It's not related to your family's religious tradition, whether that's Baptist or Catholic or non religious. It's not related to how good of a person you are. Our religious identity. Our identity in Christ is related to whether or not we proclaim Jesus as Lord. And not just proclaim it with our mouth, but say that truly Jesus is in charge. Jesus is boss. Jesus is not a game piece so that I can get what I want. Jesus is the one over, the one over all things. He is the one who deserves and is worthy of my worship. And so this was the confession. Philippians 2 is very important, though, because it tells us that even if we do not proclaim Jesus as Lord now, one day everyone will proclaim Jesus as Lord. And so the question is very simply, will we proclaim him as Lord now, or will we proclaim him as Lord when all of a sudden we die apart from him and then we realize, oh, that's who Jesus was, not just a religious figure not just a good person, not just a good teacher. He was God. He was God with us who died to absorb our sin, to take away our death, and to give us new life. That's what we have to come to, to grips with. That's what we have to face. Here's what I want us to know this morning. We were all made to give our life for something. We were all made to give our life for something. And the thing that you give your life for is the thing that you worship. Worship is not music. Worship is not church attendance. Worship is what drives your life. How do you make decisions? How do you determine priorities? What is in control of your life? That is the thing that we worship. There was a quote on the screen earlier that I passed over, and you guys don't have to go back to it. But what I want us to realize is that we live in a world where people worship their work, they work at their play, and they play at their worship. We worship our job, not because you love your job, but because you give your life to it. The time that you give, the energy you give, the identity that you gain from your job, we live in a world where people worship their work. And then they're so tired from work that they need a release, and so they work at their plate. We have hobbies that consume our time and our energy, and oftentimes can even destroy our families, but we give all of this energy and, and, and focus to our play, and then when it comes to worship, that's when we play. 
we treat it so lightly. We treat it so flippantly. We, we say, oh yeah, Jesus is okay. He's part of my life. But stop worshiping work. Stop working at play. And please, can we all hear the idea that we must stop playing at worship? Because the one who is God, who came and lived among us, who died for us, who did not stay dead but rose again, he is the only one who is worthy of our worship. And so when we come together on Easter, we don't come together to have a nice service. We don't come together to get a nice spiritual feeling. We don't come to try to get our life put back together. We come to declare that Jesus is Lord. And what I would ask us to do this morning is to make two commitments. Based on Matthew 27, based on Philippians 2, based on who Jesus is, I would ask you to make two commitments. The first is that you will worship Jesus as Lord. That you will say, my whole life, every decision I make, everything that I do, every place that I go, is driven by the fact that Jesus is Lord. I'm not in control of my life. No other person is in control of my life. Jesus is the one who is Lord. And, And once again, just so there's no confusion... We're not talking about church attendance. We're not talking about a good person. We're talking about what drives your life. The fact that Jesus is Lord and he is Savior. And you might be saying, Owen, this is exactly why I don't like church. And exactly why I don't like Jesus. Because you're telling me I have to give up my family and my job and my hobbies. No, that's the whole point. I'm telling you, don't give those things up. It's the fact that Jesus transforms all of those things. You will still go to work. You will still spend time with your family. You will still do the things that you love to do for play. You will just now do those things for Jesus. Those things will not drive your life. Jesus will drive and transform the way that you approach those things. And so now as believers, we look at work differently. We look at family differently. We look at play differently. We should be the hardest workers the best family people, and the most fun people. And in fact, we're usually known for all those opposites. (laughs) But when Jesus transforms our life, that's the direction he takes us. And so we will commit this morning to worship him as Lord. And the follow-up to that is that we will give our lives away so that others will worship him as Lord. After Jesus' resurrection, at the very end of Matthew, if you flipped over a couple of pages and you got to Matthew chapter 28, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus appears to his disciples and he tells them that he has all authority, that he is Lord. And as a result of that, you know what Jesus tells his disciples? He tells them to go to church every Sunday. No, he doesn't. Actually, he doesn't tell them that. He tells them to go and make disciples. He tells them to go and see people baptized. He tells them to go and teach people how to live the way that he would have them to live. And so when we proclaim Jesus as Lord, that is just the starting point. The second step beyond that is that we will give our lives away to see other people do the same thing. And so when you think about this church, what is First Baptist going to be about? We are going to be about proclaiming Jesus as Lord And then we are going to display that with our lives to everyone that we encounter. And what we have to start with this morning, and what I want us to hear this morning is, are we just playing games? 
Are we just playing games as a church? Are we just playing games as people? Or are we worshiping? When you think about your life, what role does Jesus Christ play in your life? Is he part of your life? Is he sort of like something you think about every once in a while? Or is he at the very core of who you are? Are you worshiping him as Lord and Savior? And then are you living for him? As we conclude our time this morning, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to stand and sing a song together that proclaims Jesus as Lord, that talks about who Jesus is. On Easter Sunday, I am calling us together to make these commitments. And if you need someone to pray with you, if you say, I have been playing a game. I have been playing a game with Jesus and I am ready to worship him. That is the most important thing that you can do this morning. If you say, I've just been playing a game with church, get right with God this morning. We have people in the balcony that are going to be there to pray with you. We have people on the floor that are going to be here to pray with you. Let's begin by making the commitment that we will worship Jesus as Lord.